0: So, So when I was in uh, college, I was required to take an upper-level philosophy class that focused on the thought of one individual, and if I'm remembering correctly, then there were three individuals you could pick from. There was uh, St. Augustine, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, and C.S. Lewis, so um, St. Augustine was definitely the plus National Geographic of that bunch. Everyone was going for Tolkien or Lewis, and uh, I chose the thought of C.S. Lewis, and I chose the thought of C.S. Lewis because um, a couple of reasons, but the first was that I was already taking a class on Tolkien and I wasn't smart enough to realize that if I took two Tolkien classes at the same time that I have less reading to do. So <laughs> there was, yeah, there, there was a lot of reading to do in the C.S. Lewis class. Um, and there was so much reading that our professor had us complete reading quizzes. Um, now, if you've never had a class where you had to do reading quizzes, they're really basic. They're like five questions, just, recover- like just covering whatever you had to read for the class. And um, I remember one reading quiz in particular, And in, in fact, I remember one question on a, one reading quiz in particular because it was so dastardly good. It was just so, it was such a good question that would weed out anyone um, if they hadn't read it. It was just so simple. So we were reading C.S. Lewis's Miracles. Has anyone read that before? C.S. Lewis's book on miracles. It's a good book. Um, You should read it. Um, But if you haven't read it, which is everyone, (laughs) um, then you'll probably fall into the same trap. So there is one miracle that C.S. Lewis calls the grand miracle. And the question was simply, what is the grand miracle? What is the grand miracle? Now, if you had actually, you know, if you hadn't read the book and you were just filling out the quiz of questions, then you would just write down, I don't know, the resurrection, and then just keep going. And you would fall right into the trap because you would think, "Ah, oh, yes, the resurrection, that's the miracle at the center of our faith. That's the grand miracle. Um, but no, it's not. C.S. Lewis didn't think the grand miracle was the resurrection. Actually, he thought the grand miracle was not the first Easter, but the first Christmas. He thought the grand miracle was the incarnation, that an infinite God Entered into a finite body, he donned the frail, finite flesh of a creature. The grand miracle was that God became a body. Now, if you haven't noticed, we're starting the Christmas season. Um, we sang "Joy to the World." That's the only time we sing is during the Christmas season. There's a pine tree in the room. That's only during the Christmas season. It's the season where we celebrate that grand miracle when we celebrate the incarnation. And honestly, when I was thinking about the incarnation, I was just struck with a question. Um, And I've already spoiled the question by telling Matt to make a slide for this lesson. A very beautiful slide, by the way. I can tell he put a lot of effort into that. Um, But honestly... When I hit it, Ryan was like, is that supposed to say Brody? Brodies. Why? Um, So yeah, uh, but the question is, like, bodies. Why do we have these? Why... Are we embodied beings? Like, I mean, we talked about the angels before we sang Joy to the World. Angels aren't made out of meat. Why am I? Like, what is this? Why do I have this? So today we're going to meditate on our bodies. We're going to think about why God made them. We're going to think about how we should view them. We're going to think about what we gain from using them. Not that we really have a choice in using them. But before we begin, let's begin with a word of prayer. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you can gather us here today, that we can meditate on um, a complex topic such as the bodies that you gave us. And uh, yeah, I pray, Lord, that on this meditation we could uh, recognize why you gave us bodies, uh, what we can use them for, and how we can glorify you through them. I pray this in your name. Amen. So we were talking about C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis has this quote that is famously misattributed to him. You've probably heard it. It goes something like this. You have a body, but you are a soul. You have a body, but you are a soul. And as pithy and nice as that sounds, um, it's not only not from C.S. Lewis, but I also think it's not very biblical. The Bible, at least from my reading of it, is never so reductionist to tell us that we only have bodies. It never diminishes our bodies to the point as something that we just possess for instance, in Psalm 139.13, 13, the psalmist says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. It doesn't say you knitted my body. Rather, it says you knitted me. And this equating of oneself with the body seems to be contrary to what many of us were brought up uh, teaching, uh, t- uh, learning in the church, what we've been taught. For many of us, there's what we call like, a mind-body dualism. And that's just a fancy way of saying that um, we, are, we have a body, but we are a soul. And that soul is like our mind. And that soul component is what's really important. The soul, the immaterial part, that's what's the important. That's what a mind-body dualism says. And the body is just like this low, frankly, gross part of us. But that dualism is foreign to the Bible. In fact, the word which is often translated as soul in our Bibles, which in Greek is psyche or just psyche. um, That word psyche is probably better translated as life or being. To the New Testament authors, your psyche or your soul was the totality of who you are, your mind and your body. And if you don't believe me, you can just turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2 verses 29 through 30. Philippians 2. Verses 29 through 30. You're going to get there and you're going to be like, is this, is this the right part of the Bible? Yes, it's Philippians 2, verses 29 through 30. So, what's going on in this passage is Paul is writing a friendship letter to the Philippians and he's uh, commending to them Epaphroditus and saying, you should emulate this man. Um, but Epaphroditus, who had come to Paul to provide aid for Paul, he had gotten sick. And in fact, Paul says he didn't just get sick, but he almost died. So in verses 29 through 33 of Philippians 2, Paul says, So then, welcome him, Epaphroditus, in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves cannot give me. And that little word in there, life, that's psyche. That's what your Bible likely translates elsewhere as soul. Paul isn't saying that Epaphroditus risked an immaterial part of him that must be saved in order to go to heaven. No, he's saying that Epaphroditus put his life, his being, at risk by serving Paul. So with that in mind, let's not reduce ourselves. Now, let's not reduce our bodies by saying that we only have bodies. The Bible makes a strong connection between ourselves and our bodies, and the biblical language about our soul doesn't support the mind-body dualism that we've probably, if we haven't gotten from church, then we probably got it from the culture. If we want to correct that adage, that famous not C.S. Lewis adage that we heard, that you have a body, but you are a soul, you might want to just say, you are a body, you are a soul, you are a body, you are a soul. So with that correction out of the way, it gets us back to the question, which is on the slide. Um, bodies. Why? <laughs> why do we have bodies? Why do we? Sorry, not why do we have bodies. Why are we bodies? Why are we embodied creatures? Well, there's a lot of philosophical responses to that. If you've read C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain, then you've heard a few of those. But let's focus on what the Bible says. I know you guys just jumped to Philippians 2, verses 29 to 30, but I want you to find a really difficult passage. I want you to find Genesis 1. Um, yes, I know, very shocking, very difficult to find. Um, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, while we're at it, why not? So, um, Genesis 1, if you didn't know, is the first page of your Bible. Um, sorry, the Table of Contents is the first page of your Bible. Um, second page of your Bible is Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 is the creation of the world. It's a narrative of how the world began. And in verse 24, in verse 24, we read of the creation of animals. God says, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced all the beasts and livestock according to their kind. So we know the beasts are created from the ground. Genesis 2.19 affirms this origin to the animals. The passage says, Out of the ground, Yahweh God, the Lord God, formed every beast. Animal bodies were formed from the earth. Everyone got that. Animal bodies are formed from the earth. But this origin from the ground is not unique to animal bodies. If you've been in Genesis 1 and 2 before, you know that human bodies are made from the ground as well. Genesis 2, 7 says that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So there's some similarities there between human bodies and animal bodies. Both have a similar origin. Both are created from the dirt of the ground. However, God made the humans a little differently. We're not like the animals in every way. As the rest of Genesis 2-7 tells us, God breathes into the man's nostrils the breath of life. And as we see earlier, in Genesis one twenty seven, God created man in his own image. In the image of man, he created him male and female. He created them. So while human beings share the same origin as animals, we see that there is a distinction. Only humans are made in the image of God. And this gets to one of the reasons why I think we have bodies. One of the reasons that I think we have bodies is that our bodies illustrate our role in God's story. If you're a note taker, it's point one. Our bodies illustrate our role in God's story. You see, In the beginning, we were designed to be mediators between God and his creation. And honestly, it would be a multi-part sermon to go into the details of that statement. But I'll simply say that these Genesis stories, that in these Genesis stories, we see images of kingship and images of priesthood. Images of kingship and images of priesthood. The images of kingship are most clearly seen in the idea of an image. We are made as the image of God. And in ancient times, whenever a king would conquer a land or acquire it, he would erect a monument, an image there as a demonstration as, and as an extension of his power and rule. And in the same way, when God finished his creation, he crafted a living monument. Spoiler alert, it's us. He created a living monument as a sign and an extension of his own kingship. He even gave that living monument marching orders. He told the monument to reign over the earth and to transform it into a garden like the one that was in Eden. In other words, the marching orders that we are called to reign with God. Similarly, scholars have known for a long time that the garden found in Genesis is depicted as a temple. And if the garden is a temple, then there must be priests too, right? Right? Well, Adam and Eve were created to be that first priesthood. Just as a priest is a mediator between God and his people, stepping into the role of each, the mediator plays the role of God for the people and the role of the people for God. So too were Adam and Eve meant to be mediators. So basically just like the bridge, sorry, the mediator, the priest, is a bridge between two parties, so too is humanity meant to be a bridge between two parties. And our bodies illustrate that. Like, we are bodies, much like animals are. However, we are also distinct from animals. We are God's image. God's fingerprints are on us in a way that is not like the animals. Our bodies show how we play two roles. To God, we play the role of creature. We submit ourselves to him and listen to his orders. But to creation, we are God's emissaries. We share God's love to that created order. And so our bodies are signs of our roles. We're animals and we're spirits, and we have roles to play as both. So with all that said, it should go without saying that our bodies have value. I mean, our bodies do have value. So another answer to the question of bodies, why, could be that, I mean, our bodies have value. I was reading through uh, 1 Corinthians earlier, uh, and I was somewhat dumbfounded by a very brief statement that Paul says. Um, It's in 1 Corinthians 6.13. You can turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, because we are now going to be reading from there. 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to be focusing on verse 13, 1 Corinthians 6.13. And in this passage, Paul is uh, rebuffing a claim that the Corinthian church was making. The Corinthian church claimed... um, let me just read it. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, the euphemism isn't abundantly clear in English, although you can read what Paul says afterwards and see what they're getting at. Um, they're actually talking about sex. Um, the Greek word for stomach, uh, koelia, koelia, uh could also be used for reproductive organs, so they're really saying like, hey, I want to fill my success. I want to fill my sexual desires. After all, God's going to destroy my body anyways. Nothing's going to stop me. But Paul responds by saying the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Now, if you guys are using the ESV, which is what our church uses as our standard teaching Bible, then I want to make a brief clarification because you'll be like, well, it doesn't seem like God cares about the body in the ESV version. Um, If you're using the ESV, the translators have properly translated the passage. However, they have improperly punctuated the passage, in my opinion. Um, They think that the Corinthian claim ends after food, that food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Stop. And that Paul jumps in by saying, yeah, and God's going to destroy both of those. Um, However, it seems more likely that what's going on here is that the Corinthians are despising their own bodies through abuse, through the abuse of um, pursuing sexual desires and sexual promiscuity. They're undervaluing their own bodies. And because they're undervaluing their own bodies, they are the ones who are asserting, they're probably the ones who are asserting the destruction of their own bodies, not Paul. And other translations make this clear. It's not something I'm making up. This is something that's kind of, a what's the word, idiosyncrasy of the ESV translation. So, Long story short, Paul is telling the Corinthians that the body is for the Lord. He's saying, hey, don't undervalue your bodies. The body is for the Lord. But what really dumbfounded me is what comes next in the passage where Paul doesn't just say the body is for the Lord, but the Lord is for the body. The body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. If you think about it, that's kind of a weird sentence, a weird, a weird thing to think about. And it's kind of amazing when you think about it. I think Paul's communicating two things with that. So the first part, obviously, the body is for the Lord. That one's the more self-explanatory of the two. I think what he's really getting that there is that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God loves us so much. He loves us as embodied creatures so much that he purchased our bodies through the grand miracle. He became a body and took the death that we deserved, ransoming our bodies from evil. And now, if we call ourselves Christians, he has taken up residence in our bodies. I mean, God clearly values our bodies if he's going to go through all of that. In fact, he doesn't just value our bodies, but as the second thing Paul communicates says, God is for our bodies. God is for our bodies. Now, that sounds weird, um, but I think what Paul is communicating Is that if we follow christ's command christ being the lord if we follow christ's commands if we allow christ to rule over our bodies then he will rule them for our benefit christ will rule our bodies for our benefit and to use the corinthians example when they're talking about sexual immorality um, when christ tells us not to engage in sexual immorality the whole point of that is because he cares for our bodies. He doesn't want us to undervalue our bodies and to ruin our bodies through that activity. He's doing that because he values us. He values our bodies and doesn't want us to inflict harm. So long story short, our bodies have value. Our bodies have value before God. He values our bodies and he doesn't just value our bodies, but he is for our bodies. He died for them, he's for them, and he's going to resurrect them. So Probably goes without saying, but care for your bodies, and don't just care for your bodies, but care for other people's bodies too. If you aren't getting enough sleep, or you know someone who's not getting enough sleep, tell them to get more sleep. If you know someone who's not eating enough, tell them to get a sandwich or something. If you know someone who doesn't have good hygiene? <laughs> well, maybe you shouldn't tell them that; that would be rude. But <laughs> but also, it's one of these like even like even like touch. Like I don't know. I heard that like they perform these off years ago they performed these terrible experience, experiments where they would just let children just not have human touch and like infants and the infants would die without human touch terrible experiments it's so, like people need physical touch and that's one of the reasons why we have bodies so we can experience that we can share that with people and we can experience that need so to review what we've gotten so far one of the reasons we're embodied creatures is that our bodies demonstrate our role. Our bodies demonstrate our role in God's story. Another reason is that our bodies are valuable. They're valued by God. And the final reason, because I always have to do three points for some reason. I can never do more or no less. Three points, always. Uh, our final point, and I apologize that this one needs a little explaining, is that our bodies are inputs for spiritual formation. Our bodies are inputs for spiritual formation. Now many of us operate under the assumption that we do things because we believe things. That's not unique to us. It's common post-enlightenment idea that we are basically brains on sticks and that those, our brains operate those sticks. So um, people believe that we do things because we believe things. For instance, we believe that God hears us when we pray, and so we pray. Or we believe that we love our spouse, so we do the dishes. I have not done the dishes in a few days, so I probably don't believe I love my spouse. Um, So, (laughs) uh, yes. And honestly, that's, that's sometimes true. There are genuine times where we believe things, and so we do things. Or we believe things, so we don't do things. But sometimes, it's the opposite. Sometimes... We believe things because we do things. Sometimes we believe things because we do things. In other, words, in other words, our actions and therefore our bodies have the potential to shape our beliefs. Our bodies have the potential to shape our beliefs. And this is particularly uh, something we see when it comes to rituals. And I'm not just being like religious rituals. I'm like talking about common practices that we do in our lives our rituals mold our beliefs or reinforce previously held beliefs um so when i was a kid i my family used to watch nascar all the time Yes, no joke. Like I'm, my grandpa was a race car driver. My grandma was a race car driver. All my uncles were race car drivers. I'm sorry, grand uncles uh, were race car drivers and mechanics and everything. I always joke my family was a whole bunch of farmers and mailmen until the car was invented and they decided they're all just gonna start fixing cars, which is kind of true. So, um, but yes, we watch NASCAR all the time. And if you've ever seen a NASCAR race, they always begin with a big display of the US military with unfurling the American flag a prayer. Those things together. A prayer, an American flag, and F-22 raptors flying overhead. And that's a ritual. And that's a ritual that shapes our beliefs. When we engage in that, it shapes our beliefs. Because it shows us that, hey, God and country are two things that fit together. God and country are two things that fit together. What's good for America is good for God. And If you believe that, that's great. But there's also times when what our country is doing is not what God wants us to be doing. But that liturgy or that ritual uh, shapes us. By engaging in that, it shapes us. And this is a biblical idea, too. I'm describing a negative example of how rituals and engaging with things in our bodies can shape us. However, there are good examples, too. For instance, I think that one of the reasons that God gave the Old Testament law was so that he could shape the Israelite mind through action, shaping the mind through action. For example, in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3, we hear that if an individual wants to present a burnt offering before God, the lamb presented must be a male without blemish. A male without blemish. That without blemish is a Hebrew word, tamim. Tamim. In, Le- in Leviticus, this... Physical, sorry, this word, tamim, without blemish, is a physical category. It's not talking about, like, a moral category. It's not saying, like, oh, you have to find a, a sinless lamb. Um, I don't think lambs can sin, but that's a discussion for another day. So, um, so it's not discussing the morals of the situation. However, the embodied act of selecting a lamb without blemish and presenting it before God that shaped Israelite thinking. This ritual that they performed all, of, all the time shaped their thinking, and it shaped the way they viewed God. Through this embodied act, they were able to reflect on truths about God, such as the fact that only a person without defect, damim, in the moral sense, could dwell in God's presence. If you read Psalm 15, the first couple verses of Psalm 15, that's what the, uh, the psalmist says. He asks, who can dwell in your tents? Who can live on your holy mountain? And he's like, ah, it's a person who is tamim. He's applying the physical category of the lamb to the moral category. And that's through ritual. His actions, his use of his body shaped his belief. Similarly, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that when a man and a woman properly engage in the embodied act of marriage, they are revealing the love of Christ and the church. The body, once again, becomes an input for spiritual formation, since the members of the marriage are able to learn about Christ's relationship with the church in a way entirely unique to them. So by performing these Old Testament laws and by doing marriage well we receive inputs from our body that can shape us spiritually by doing these things we receive inputs from our body that can shape us spiritually now i use the word liturgy i use the word ritual don't quote me as saying i want you to do mindless rituals all the days of your life just don't do mindless things over again like repeating the same words or i don't know doing whatever. I can't think of an example off the top of my head. (laughs) So don't do any mindless stuff. Like don't just like bow five times before you go to sleep or something like that. Um, Because it's not just about doing the ritual. It's about letting the ritual shape you and about reflecting upon the ritual as well. It's receiving the inputs and allowing those inputs to shape you by considering them. By receiving the input of your body and reflecting on that input, you can experience spiritual formation. In fact, the reality of doing can mold you. The reality of doing can mold you. So if you're like me and you've been wondering, bodies, why, especially in this time of year when the grand miracle is coming and this incarnation is happening, like, why, again, am I made of this stuff? Well, hopefully this gives you a few answers. If you, want, if you have any questions, then you can ask me after our prayer time. But we're going to be going into a time of prayer. And I'm, I'll write it on the board in a second. But I think two things we should pray for. Um, first, I think we should thank God for our bodies. Might be a weird thing to uh, thank God for. Because I know a lot of people, I experience this in my own life. You know, We idolize the body, like the cultural ideal of a body, while despising our own body. And I know I've experienced that in my own life, but turn to God to Thanksgiving for your body, your own individual body, not just bodies in general. And then pray for the care of the body. Pray for the care of either your body or someone else's body. That could be someone who's sick. That could be someone who you knows is dealing with stress and really needs to find rest. It could be with someone that you know really needs a hug. I don't know. I like, can be like, hey, like, let's bring some people around them who are able to give them that need as well. Um, yeah, pray for the care of the body, as well as your other prayer requests. So I'm going to conclude in a word of prayer, a brief one, and then you guys can break out into your prayer groups. Let's pray. Dear God, as Psalm 139 tells us, we are fearfully and wonderfully made by you. You knit us together in our mother's wombs. You formed humanity out of the dust, and you made us in your image for a particular role. And God, even when we fell, even when our bodies became corrupted through our own sin, uh, you redeemed our bodies by becoming a body yourself through the grand miracle. You purchased our bodies, you ransomed them from death, and you are resurrecting them, God. Thank you for that. Thank you that you gave us the ability to experience sensations like feeling feeling the grass between our fingers, feeling the sun, on our skin. We appreciate that. You didn't have to do that for us, but you did. And we thank you for that. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Try split into groups of three or four please. Thanks, Brody. Of course.